When it comes to most exam subjects, it seems fairly automatic that revision, for GCSEs at least, is mostly about the ways that you can retain facts and figures. So for many students, revising English literature mostly boils down to creating a bank of quotes that they can use. All too often then, preparing for English language is an afterthought sort of on the basis that, while I speak English, what else is to revise? But given that maths and English language are often required as passes to get on to further education, there must be more to it than an innate ability. Hello, and welcome to the Study Sessions podcast. I'm Nathan, founder of The Study Buddy and your host. In this, our second season of the podcast, we're following six students as they head towards their GCSEs in 2021. Each week, I catch up with these very different teams to see how things are going in a one-to-one coaching session. With a panel of experts in our weekly podcast, we discuss some of the issues that come up. These could be broad themes, such as motivation or managing mental health, or they could be very focused, like how best to revise for a specific subject. These are normal teams, and so you can be sure that we'll be covering the topics that young people up and down the country will face. So if you're a parent, a carer, or a teacher, be sure to subscribe. This week, we're looking at revising for English. Now, it's the first time that we've looked at a specific subject, and I'm especially excited by this one. I'm delighted to be talking to Jennifer Webb. Jenny is currently assistant head at a large inner-city comprehensive school in Leeds, and she has been a head of English. She's also a blogger, a speaker, and an author. Her books include How to Teach English Literature, Overcoming Cultural Poverty, and more recently, Teach Like a Writer. Jenny also delivers professional development sessions to hundreds of teachers every month. Jenny, thank you so much for joining me. Over the last couple of weeks, most of our students have really started to knuckle down on their studies at home, not least of all because, as we're recording this episode, we're in the middle of half-term. Something that's really struck me about each of them is how English, and English language in particular, tends not to feature as especially important in their plans Certainly not as much as, let's call them, fact-based subjects like maths, sciences or history, for example. But curiously, each one of our students knows how important English is and that they have to pass it to move on to their next steps. Jenny, why is it that people think that they can't, or maybe that they don't need to, revise for English beyond learning a few quotes? I think that it's it's a complicated one. So English language, historically you only had to pass English language. So you had to get your your C or above in English language under the old system. And so English language has always been the one that's less knowledge-based and more skills-based, kind of that's how people perceive it. So in English language, you are expected to read some newspaper articles or kind of literary nonfiction and understand it and answer some questions on it. So an old-fashioned comprehension task and then do some writing because you don't you can't bring a lot of prior knowledge to that kind of task people think you can't revise for it because you just have to respond to whatever comes up in the exam you don't know what the writer will be you don't know what the text will be or the task will be that historically has been why people have believed that because versus when you compare that with English literature English literature has tons and tons of content that you can actually revise for and memorize and 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 apply in revision so the issue is now actually that First of all, the change to the exams that have happened. So a lot of teenagers who are now doing their exams, 
people around them still have this old idea that you just have to pass language and actually you have to pass language or literature. So that has changed. If you pass English literature at GCSE but don't pass English language at GCSE, you um, don't have to resit, if that makes sense. You have to get one of them because oh, wow. there's now a recognition that the level of skill in writing and comprehension that you need in order to pass English literature is just as, um, just, it's just as high a bar as it is in English language. Um, so, that, so that's a really positive thing. It, it is a fallacy that you can't revise for English. Um, it's ridiculous. <laughs> I think it's it's a very different kind of revision. And I think it's all about how we define what, how, how do we define what revision is? Revision, traditionally, a lot of people think that it's, um, here's a list of stuff, here's a lot of keywords and um, facts, formulae, dates, that kind of thing. And students need to memorise them. And in lots of subjects, that is a lot of what revision is um in english it's really really important that we def- we kind of redefine what revision means and what it means is yes having lots of knowledge because there is knowledge in english language that you can revise there is lots of knowledge beyond quotations in english literature which you can revise um but then how do we apply that knowledge to really fluent high level writing and really fluent high level reading um And actually, revision doesn't just have to be, I'm going to memorise this, I'm going to learn this. Actually, revision can be, I can practice doing this skill, applying this knowledge in my writing in time conditions. And we need to move to that point. So to what extent do students feel confident writing a plan to a short story? To what extent do they feel confident um, telling me how to get top marks on question four on the reading paper, section A? Um, So it's a... It's, it's, it's a different kind of knowledge, different type of revision, but you absolutely can revise for English. And you should revise for English. <laughs> because it doesn't, sound, it doesn't sound to me that that's just technique either. It's not that I understand that question four is going to be phrased or structured like this, and therefore I need to go through these motions. And that, I think, was something that certainly when Jake was going through his uh, GCSEs, he had that kind of impression, I'll do a couple of past papers so long as I know my... AO1s and my AO3s, everything will be okay. But that's not what this is about, is it? No, I don't think so at all. Um, I think that students, in order to engage, so for example, in the English language papers, there are two English language papers, and both of them start with a section A reading paper. They're slightly different in structure, depending on which exam board you do, but they're all quite similar, really, because the requirements for Mofqual are very standardised. Essentially, the questions will ask you to do things like infer meaning from a text they will ask you to do things like retrieve information so you know if it's an article about a penguin doing ice skating then it will be a question like what do you learn about ice skating penguins (laughs) in this in this article so (laughs) it will always give you a really simple retrieval task generally that's what they start with to kind of warm you up it will always give you a language question so how is the writer used language for effect how has the writer used structure um, structured this text to create impact whatever there's often a question which is like a judgment question to what extent do you agree with this about the text they sound like kind of old-fashioned comprehension it's the kind of thing where you just have to read and be if you can speak english and understand enough of the vocabulary you should be able to figure it out and answer the questions well but actually the trick to answering a lot of those questions is first of all having enough linguistic knowledge so Do you understand grammar well enough to be able to make points about how writers use language? There's some really great work being done by people who are in stylistics and things who are working on 
helping us to teach grammatical structures a little bit better because things like a student being able to say something like the fact that in this paragraph suddenly the writer switched into the past tense this has an impact on the reader it, it takes us back it's nostalgia or something like that so being able to make points about grammar requires grammatical foundational knowledge for example, students understanding that's an adjective, that's an adverb, that's an adjectival phrase, that kind of thing will be helpful. So there is that side of knowledge for students to understand. They can get through without that, but that will stand them in really, really good stead because they're able to make far more nuanced points if they have that grammatical knowledge and they know that vocabulary. Um, sounds a little bit scary, but it's really, really not scary um, <laughs> once you get your head around it. There's the other side of knowledge. So thinking about... Um, if you know you're going to have to answer answer a question, say question four, where they're having to make a judgment, do they have sufficient vocabulary in order to express a judgment? My students might learn a range of sequencing connectives or comparative connectives. Um, however, moreover, although, they might have lots of adjectives that are going to help them. So the writer's use of the writer's use of color is striking. The reader is compelled. To, do you see what I mean? So language which is going to help students to express themselves in a really precise way is really effective, particularly because it's much, much easier to say the writer's use of colour is striking than to say the same thing with less advanced vocabulary but with more words because they're having to mm. write for longer and time is of the essence in the exam. So there is lots of content that will help them in terms of knowledge. It's not just about actual te exam technique. And as you say, actually, you hear that quite a lot. Well, certainly I've heard it a lot that, well, we've done, he's done English or she's done English for all of her school career. And so what they don't know by now, you can't teach them and they speak it. So they'll be fine. But actually, as you, as you just pointed out, there's an awful lot in there that is much more finessed that actually is maybe the difference in between a lower or middling mark and a, and a higher mark, which for some students is going to be really important for them. Absolutely. And I would say that I, I get that from a lot of people. Actually, you know, they don't speak maths, they speak English, and therefore they need to work really hard on their maths because they can speak English and therefore they'll pass. English as a subject academically is not how to speak English. They, they've been learning that since they were in the in utero, right? That's, that's something that's been going on for a really long time. So our job, certainly at secondary school, is not to teach children how to speak English. Obviously, we work with students who have English as an additional language. We, we work with a lot of those students at my school, for example. But it is not the English department's job to teach kids how to speak English. It's not even the English department's job to teach children how to spell or how to use punctuation appropriately. That's everybody's job, really. It's our job to teach children how language works that's very 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 different so I what I don't I spend my time trying to get students to understand nuance and how writers can manipulate and how writers can persuade how writers can be biased and show exhibit that bias teaching students how to use language in order to empower themselves so when students are being asked in a GCSE exam to write a persuasive letter that's as much as I have my own political issues with the way those tasks are constructed, I actually wish we were doing something a little bit more profound, if I'm honest. But that task is designed because it's our job to... I don't just want my children to be able to speak and understand the English language. I want them to be able to leave school and be in a difficult situation with a landlord when they're at university and be able to write a really brilliant letter saying, these are my rights... I'm concerned that the boiler hasn't been fixed in three weeks. Um, this needs to be changed. 
blah, 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 blah. They need to be people who can express themselves and stand up for themselves, advocate for themselves and their families. And they're really, really key skills. So it's not just about saying, can you speak English? Can you read a road sign? Um, can you ask for something in a shop? It's can you understand how language has power to um, affect your life positively and negatively? Can you understand that some people are trying to manipulate you using language? Can you understand that some people are able to use language in a beautiful way to enhance your life, you know, through art? Like, that's why we read literature. That's why we do novels and poetry and go to the theatre and watch film. It, it goes so far beyond just, well, my kids can already speak English, so they're going to get a pass anyway. The, the, the subject is more than that. And actually, it's really interesting because you hear a lot, well, I don't know, I don't know what the point of learning history is or geography is I'm never going to need it later but actually as you've as you, um, summed up as you would accept, uh, expect beautifully eloquently that um, actually English language is a skill for life I mean this is absolutely this and, and math you can absolutely see as, building, as being the building blocks for, for everything that they would need in life beyond school but more immediately I think what strikes me and certainly struck me at the time that Jake was doing his exams was how that structuring, understanding what the question's about, reading the passage to be able to extract the facts, actually all of that applies to any other essay-based question that these children might face in any of their other subjects, isn't it? Absolutely. And I would actually say that what you said about kind of history, geography, I, I'm a big advocate for academic study for the sake, for its own sake. And obviously we want to build a love, love of learning and have children who will go on to, you know, be learners for the rest of their lives. I think there's nothing more powerful that you can do. But actually a lot of the, sub, the academic subjects that aren't English and maths are also practising those skills in different ways. And kind of if we get in a little bit into kind of cognitive science here, when you use skills and apply knowledge, when you retrieve knowledge from kind of the store cabinets in your brain, in your long-term memory, the more times you retrieve that knowledge, the stronger that kind of that, that retrie retrieval becomes. So the ability to remember things is strengthened every time you are forced to remember things. So if my students in English are being asked to use all of their knowledge about how to construct a persuasive essay in English... And then they go down the corridor to history and they're being asked to basically do the same thing, applied to different context, but they're being asked for their opinion. They're being asked to um, make a judgment. They're being able to, asked to assess evidence. It's all the same skill in terms of the kind of vocabulary they're going to use, the structure they're going to use. Um, they understand rhetoric. They understand um, all of the things that create a really, really good response. And even though there are differences between English and history, we are using the same muscles and we're using the same kind of um, kind of synaptic links between kind of knowledge. And actually, the more we use those, the stronger the brain gets. Literally, the harder they think, the more they have to do the same kinds of tasks, but in different contexts, the better their brain is at doing its job. And so we really, really want to encourage students to work just as hard in music and drama and history and art as they're working in English and maths, because it's going to help them. And that that it's so, so critical that we don't get into this thing, particularly as parents, like my children, my son, my eldest has only just started primary school. So I'm not yet at the point where I have teenagers of my own. It's so, so important as parents that we don't get wrapped up in this idea that English and maths are what's important because there is so much more to school. There is so much more. And all of these subjects are interconnected. No, absolutely. I completely agree as well. And I think it's, it's one of those things where you can see that actually the 
your child and every child is is different in this respect that actually they might get really excited by um geography jake did and biology as he did and then not so much about spanish not, but then actually that might also change depends on the days he's having and so encouraging a broader love of learning is is what will help him to see that actually this is what i want to do next we see that more in my daughter i think who's a, a bit younger she's sort of changing but experiencing everything is is really really key certainly for her going Back to what you were just saying and about how when they go into history and they apply the same kinds of skills, I'm really interested to know if it matters that they don't realise that. So does it matter that it's accidental or do they need to, in, in order to strengthen those retrieval bonds and, and paths, that they actually need to recognise, ah, this is what Miss told me in English and I'm doing that now? Or does it, does it just happen because they're doing it anyway? It's a great question. Um, yes and no. So they are getting benefit from that exercise whether they know it or not so that's the first thing your brain does a lot of things without you realizing it and i say that to my kids all the time your brain is like a whole other character that you have to figure out you have to get to know your own brain and how it works basically because it does lots of mad things when you're asleep so even if you're not aware of it your brain is working and getting better that's that that's a great thing for our students um, and that's how you know my 4 year old is coming home and and saying things he wasn't saying last week and he doesn't really know that he's learning he thinks he's playing a game all right um but there is an enormous amount of evidence that suggests um, that if you are explicitly aware of what's working for you in the classroom, if you are made to articulate or helped to articulate the fact that, oh, this has worked really well for me, this technique has really helped me to remember this, I've performed well in this task because if students have are kind of um, made aware of those moments of learning, they learn faster, they learn better in the future, they're better able to plan and be kind of regulate their own learning. The word, the fancy term we use for that is metacognition. So uh, metacognition just means, oh, is it, I, a lot of people say thinking about thinking or learning about learning, but what it really means is being explicitly aware of what your brain is doing, basically. So um, and we can use this as we can use it as adults. We can use it as students. Obviously, students will have more benefit because they have younger brains, and ours are all dying out. Um, but the the research suggestion you can check this out if you're interested. There's a great report which is really accessible if parents want to read it um, from the Education Endowment Foundation on metacognition. So if you just Google EEF metacognition, you'll find it. It's a big big old PDF, but it's really really accessible. Uh, the research suggests that students who are actively being metacognitive in their day-to-day -day learning make 19 months worth of progress in a 12-month period. It has wow. enormous impact. Now, it's difficult to do well, as are the best, most of the best things are difficult to do really well. It has more positive impact than lots of the things we invest lots of time in in schools because actually it's really hard to do well. So it takes a lot of investment, a lot of time, a lot of training for teachers to do it really well. It's so powerful and parents can do this at home. So thinking about things like um, e even just those conversations you might have over dinner or in the car, tell me about something that was difficult this week. Why do you think it was difficult? Have you ever done anything like that? that before that was also difficult can you kind of find any common links between those two activities what specifically is it that you're struggling with what could you do next time to help yourself so um it kind of goes in a cycle so um monitor evaluate plan so monitor it notice something recognize that something wasn't working or recognize something was working 
um, evaluate why is that? Why did it work? Why didn't it work? How did it feel? Why did it feel difficult? Why didn't it feel difficult? And then plan, how can I replicate that success next time? Or how can I try to improve next time? So it's a really, really nice kind of, you can have those conversations. And, you know, I have them with my son quite a lot, like in a four-year-old friendly kind of way. Um, but it's that kind of, do you remember what we were talking about yesterday? Um, why did you remember that? Is that because we've talked about X in the week before and it's similar? You know, it's that kind of making those connections explicitly is powerful, really, really powerful. And it strikes me as something that young people are doing anywhere. I mean, they may not be doing it deliberately or even um, accidentally, possibly in some cases, um, with their studies. But you can more or less guarantee that every child, whether they're wanting to be a social influencer or wanting to play the a particular game on the PS4 or even Doodle Jump will have gone through those steps within themselves and internalised that process of actually how did this go, um, what, what went well about it, what didn't go so well and then what more can I do in order to get better. We need to find that way in which we can, as parents, help our children to identify those within within their subject. I'd say so. And actually, I think it's a very, very natural human instinct when it's something you want to get better at. I mm. think that giving finding... Ensuring that you find the space and time to do that thinking is difficult, especially if you've got a teenager who doesn't really want to do that thinking. It's easier in the classroom because it's something that you can do as kind of a reflection after a piece of work or a kind of planning activity before you do a piece of work. So that's a that's a really powerful thing you can do in the classroom. But actually, um, if you can get your teenager in the habit of saying, do you know what, three things this week that didn't go particularly well or that I found challenging, I'm just going to spend five minutes on each of them and think, right, what do I think didn't go well? Why didn't it go well? What did I specifically find difficult about it? Have I ever done anything else where I've been more successful? What was good about that? Or is there something I think my teacher could do to help me? Is there something my school could do to help me? Is there something I can do to help me? And we, you know, that that time invested in yourself, thinking about how you can develop as a learner and grow as a learner can be really, really, really kind of effective. I've done quite a lot of that with my own students. And after a while, once they figure out that it works, because it really works, after a while, they just do it by themselves. It's just, it's a thing they can do. And they start to think, and actually, you can use metacognition in everything. It's not just about your, your learning PGCSEs. It could be preparing for a music exam or preparing for a sports match or whatever it is, whatever it is you're trying to improve at. We've seen that a lot, actually, that that, that time for reflection helps. And actually, if you can... If you can be strong and hold the line, as one of our previous guests was talking about, in a different context, admittedly, and get past that bit where your teen is inevitably going to grunt at you when you start to talk about these kinds of things, oh, leave me alone. I've had this all day at school was typically the response that, that I was getting. But if you can move, if you can persevere and move past that to the point where they start to see those benefits, albeit reluctantly um, in Jake's case, that actually, as you say, then they, they want to take this on because actually... I've I've made my life easier or made my studies easier um, completely by, by chance or, or not, obviously. Uh, and so I want to do more of that because his life being easy is absolutely, and his studies being easy is absolutely what he was all about. Yeah. And, I, you know, if they do it from a young age, um, if they do it from kind of early primary school kind of time, oh, sorry, not, not primary school, sorry, early on in high school, then, I mean, you can do this in primary school. It does work. But anyway, if you do this from, say, year seven, year eight, year nine, by the time they get to GCSE, they already have a really good understanding of how they learn because when they're being metacognitive all the time, they're able to go, 
oh, right, so I've got to learn this content for Miss or I've got to do this piece of homework on context for English. And actually, I know that the last time I had to memorise something or the last time I had to write like this, um, I did it like this and it worked, so I'm going to do that again. So they begin to recognise that it makes their life easier. They're not just novices kind of moving around and being told what to do by their teachers. They're independent learners who are who have the agency to say, right, this is the task, this is how I'm going to complete it. And that's powerful because it means that when they go to their GCSE and they've got study leave or they've got they're able to do as much or as little revision as they want, the revision they choose to do is the most effective revision for them. Mm. And it's so curious, isn't it? Because quite often this age group are so um so fiercely um, about having independence and breaking free and doing things their own way and experimenting and trying new stuff that actually quite often not always when it comes to studies actually it'll, it, they'll default to maybe what they've done before regardless of how it turned out it's an odd an odd quirk absolutely yeah it's uh but but it's it's what's safe isn't it you kind of you go back to what's safe and I think that as teachers and as parents it's incumbent upon us to give them a range of options and help them to have the agency to choose what's going to work now I'm not a big fan of saying oh the kids can just do what they want in the classroom that's not the kind of teacher I am at all and my students will attest to that but there's certainly a level of cognitive freedom so um, I'm expecting everyone to do this I'm expecting you all to do it independently and in silence but actually the method you choose is up to you I want the same finished product, but I don't really mind how you get there. Um, and I would hope that actually by the time I have students in year 11, they know how to do this stuff and they're completely independent and it works. Um, I think that for English, it's really important that students understand their own their own role in becoming really successful English students. And I think honestly think that metacognition works really well for that early on in school because by the time you get to GCSE they've already recognized that if they don't read for pleasure they're probably going to struggle a little bit <laughs> you know it's those kinds of if you can get them to realize that stuff by themselves it's a win-win so think about English and that that finding new ways through and and also what we started talking about right at the very beginning that actually English isn't just about learning quotes I think we've we've talked a lot about English language and I completely accept that the skills there um, were brought across but is there anything more uh, that, that students could typically be doing when it comes to English literature? Are there, are there any um, special skills um, above and beyond the, the language ones that we've talked about that they should be trying to hone? Yeah, absolutely. And often for English literature, it's partly about their writing skills, so understanding how a really, really strong piece of academic essay writing can look. Um, so, to, so hopefully in the classroom they're being exposed to lots of really high level writing models so their teachers showing them how to construct texts like that when I'm teaching my students I'm giving them explicitly teaching them things like sentence structure for really high level essay writing so for example teach my kids three or four different ways to um, talk about um, a theme across a text so I might say something like the theme of x is ubiquitous in this play so they will all learn the line, the theme of X is ubiquitous in this play. And depending on what play it is, they're going to put the right theme in, if that makes sense. So the theme of violence is ubiquitous in Romeo and Juliet. It sounds really clever. They can also say violence is pervasive in Romeo and Juliet. And they can say throughout this play, violence is the main driver or something. So that's three different ways of saying exactly the same thing. But it makes the, their essay sound great because they're not saying violence is important 
and then the next time violence is important they're not just repeating themselves and saying something boring they've got three academic clever ways of saying the same thing there are lots and lots of sentence frames that they can use now kind of my mantra is if they can mimic something that's really good that mimicry becomes habit, becomes independence. So this isn't about saying, learn an essay and regurgitate that essay. This is about saying, here are lots of brilliant ways of saying things, practice them so much that they're kind of embedded because that's how great writers become great writers. They just read all the time and learn things that other people have said. Practice it so much it becomes embedded. So we're mimicking, then we become, it becomes habit and then it's independence. So you're able to take the stuff you know and then make it work for you and you develop your own style. So some students that we teach will get to a point where they have their own style by year 11. And that's such a beautiful thing when you have a class of 30 essays and you can tell who wrote each one specifically without the handwriting. You know, that's a, that's a gorgeous point for an English teacher because you feel like you've really done something for them. But I think, um, yeah, so learning, learning specific phrasing is something that a lot of students don't think about. Um, learning things like how to introduce a quotation in a really swift way so it's no good learning lots of great quotations it's a really good idea to be able to to understand a formula to do that there are there are a number of different ways of doing it but the simplest one for me is the writer does x comma quotation move on like i don't need them to say i know this because it says in the book we don't need that. That's nonsense. Um, the, right, the examiner just needs comma quotation. Make your point, comma quotation, move on. We don't have time for all the nonsense in the exam. Um, other things like learning. Um, I like getting my students to learn groups of adjectives. So, for example, if they're studying Macbeth and they are talking about Lady Macbeth, the, if the question that comes up in the exam is Lady Macbeth, my students are going to nail that question because they have memorised eight or nine adjectives to describe Lady Macbeth. So they already have their their um their kind of high level vocabulary to make sophisticated points so they will be able to say that she's mutinous she's zealous she's machiavellian she's malevolent they'll be able to say all of those things about lady macbeth because i've been drilling them we might start a lesson i'll say right back of your book straight away write down eight words for lady macbeth write down eight words for lady macbeth off you go and they will immediately go to the back of their book and just write down the words they've memorized those little tricks mean that when they go into the exam they just start and say lady macbeth is malevolent or she's a malevolent presence in this play comma quotation and then they can do their analysis but the point is they've made a really nice high level sophisticated point just because they've memorized some fancy words and I always say to my students they don't know your name they don't know your background they don't know if you free school meals or not they don't know anything like that what they know is what they see on the page so if you write like a genius even if you don't feel like one they'll treat you like a genius and that's really important you know they have to go in there and think actually I've got a blank slate the only time in my life I will ever have this is now I can kind of invent myself on this page so it doesn't matter what my target grade is because the examiner doesn't know if I go in with loads of fancy words and just use them even if I don't always use them exactly right it doesn't matter I'm 16 they'll get over that my writing could be great so yeah vocabulary sentence structure obviously things like um I do recommend memorising quotations. I really do, because I think it's critical that they go in armed with something. Um, I think it's also really important that they know their context. Um, context is a big part of the exam spec. Now, context for parents who don't know what I kind of mean by that fully, it means anything that was anything that's gone on outside of the text which has impacted the text. So that could be the historical context. So if you're looking at Shakespeare, you'll be looking at who was the monarch 
did that have an impact? So Macbeth was written, James I became king. Um, and that's a really important piece of context. The gunpowder plot is a really important piece of historical context for Macbeth. You might also look at religious context. So we've got lots of stuff in there about paganism and kind of lots of Christian imagery and they're all conflicting and that's really relevant. But you might also look at something like literary context. So it doesn't have to be what's happening in history. You might say, this is a Shakespeare tragedy and therefore it follows a set number of conventions. And that's literary context. So saying in other Shakespeare tragedies, there are lots of other examples of kings being murdered. Look at King Lear. It's not quite a murder, but he does get kind of hounded to his death. Look at things like uh, Julius Caesar. There are loads of examples of betrayal and and regicide, patricide, all of that kind of thing in Shakespeare plays. So making those kinds of links, that would be context as well. So there are loads and loads of kind of contextual things students can learn. Their teachers will have taught them that stuff. But any good revision guide will have lots of great context in a chunk at the end, probably. They can also learn literary criticism. I mean, that's been downgraded on the mark scheme these days which is a massive shame because it's such an important part of our subject is criticism the the really great philosophical stuff that helps us connect the the text with human endeavor uh it's a massive shame but i won't get political about that um so that's but that's another really good one so if you've got a student if you've got a child at home who's actually quite high level and could be getting a grade seven eight Getting them to understand things like um, a feminist critic would read this play like this. A Marxist critic would see this play like this. Those kinds of things are really kind of great content for them to have if they um, want to go that far. So there is so much they can learn for literature. And then really the revision techniques are similar to the language stuff. So it's about getting them to be able to think on their feet, getting them to be able to practice, recognise if they see the question, they should be able to pick all the stuff that's useful for it out of their brain and get it on the page. Um, at this point, I will plug a book. Um, it's not one of mine, <laughs> although I have have got a few books. Um, but the um, there's a great, great guy who's a head of English, um, just about to become head of a research school, actually. Um, he's called Mark Roberts, and he's just written a book called You Can't Revise for GCSE English. Yes, you can, and Mark Roberts shows you how. It's a really long title. It's a bit silly, but it's a book that's written for students. It's quite, it's not massively fat. They could read it in a day, packed full of revision activities. So loads and loads of utterly genius things around all the things I've said. So understanding vocabulary, how to memorise quotations, how to use your context, all of those things are in there, and I would highly recommend it. You can get it on Amazon. Really, really, really good. You Can't Revise for GCSE English by Mark Roberts. It's fab. Um, I've got students who are using it this year and they absolutely love it. Well, definitely one to look out for. And on that point of, of um, reading, and you mentioned it a moment ago uh, uh, about, I guess it comes into mimicry, um, also applies very much to the English language stuff. If you can, uh, if you're reading higher quality texts in my day, because actually I am generally that old, it used to be broadsheets that we were advised to read, um, newspapers in print for those um, for those younger people listening. Uh, and those kinds of sources. What I'm really interested in is how can you encourage reluctant readers to pick up broadly anything um, that's not a snippet or condensed into a tweet or an Instagram caption? I think the first thing, I'm going to say something that you're probably not expecting me to say, right? Reading is reading and literacy is literacy. Um, there is, there's a lot of snobbery around what people read and actually... I think people don't understand that there's an enormous amount of storytelling going on in lots of uh, video games. 
there is a huge amount of reading. There's lots and lots of storytelling. There's lo- there are lots of arcs. There's lots of character development. I have a friend in the States who's just finished his PhD in alternative literacies, looking at literacy of social media posts and literacy of video games and graphic novels. And it's fascinating. A lot of the cognitive development stuff that we do when we're young is very similar to reading these things. Like you're still telling a story or sequencing events and all of that stuff is really important. But presumably that doesn't, and I'm going to, I'm going to play to every stereotype of my of my age, that reducing your to you and are isn't going to be the kind of thing that impresses the examiners. And we talked about that just a little while ago, didn't we? That, that using fancy, sophisticated terms, if we're reading those all the time, we'll sort of get embedded. Ab- absolutely. Um, I would just point out that there isn't a single teenager that uses you are anymore. Just saying, just putting that out there. Um, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I, think, I, think I really chicken, have, but I'm now I know so, that's not true. I'm now so um, old. I'm now so old that even also, my teenage analogies aren't relevant. I mean, the, the, the other really, really important thing to recognize is that you can't abbreviate English unless you knew what it was in the first place. So you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't abbreviate something. You can't take something out if you don't know what the original looks like. So something that Professor David Crystal, who is like the messiah of linguistics experts worldwide, everybody loves David Crystal, the man is a genius, always says abbreviations, text speak. Well, you know, when text speak was a thing that everyone was freaking out about on Radio 4 and saying, oh, how will the children ever learn to read? Um, (laughs) Actually, he came out and said, that's utter nonsense um let's just get over ourselves right now there isn't a single teenager who will write you are in an exam they're not going to write lol in an exam it's not going to happen they're not stupid they're able to code switch and actually the fact that our teenagers now are able to code switch so fluently code switching is using different types of english communication in different situations they will code switch when they walk through the front door and start talking to their parents because they've been talking to their friends on the bus in a completely different code um it's the same between the corridor and the classroom and the way they speak to their friends on different social media platforms so I code switch between Facebook and Twitter because my Facebook is personal and my Twitter is professional. And that's a really, really, really important skill. It makes you a very skilled communicator if you can code switch. So, sorry, that's just a bugbear of mine because I think no, that no, I don't no. think you and give I'm, them enough I'm... credit. And I also think it's important that we recognise it in our subject that we need to prepare children to be able to read in a different way in order to access the world. Because most people now get their news through social media platforms. They get a lot of their storytelling through things like um, threads um, on Twitter or on Snapchat, Instagram. Like You get like people's stories told in little bite-sized chunks. And those things are not irrelevant. Those things have the... You know, if, if you go back 10, probably 20 years... In order for somebody to have a, an audience of a million readers, they had to go through a really, really, really closed off system where they'd have to be a published writer in a newspaper that was widely read. And they'd have to go through all of the checks and balances that would get you there. And therefore, most people who got to that point were, you know, white middle class men. Um, now, we have this situation which is much, much more democratised and anybody can get lots and lots of followers online and post a thread that goes viral and get loads and loads and loads of people reading what they say. And so 
the types of stories we reread has changed. And in many ways, our subject, the way we teach our subject and the way we think about English and reading with our, with our children and our students has to change as well because we have to prepare them. We're not actually preparing our children to live in 1947. We're preparing our children to live in 2020 or 2030 or 2040. And we have to be ready for that because otherwise we're just going to produce a bunch, a whole generation of kids who get out into the real world and say, right, so... Um, uh, where's where's some Victorian nonfiction for me to read? Because actually, that's what we've been focusing on, and we haven't been focusing on getting them to understand that that Facebook ad is a little bit dodgy, and we we need them to be able to do both. Is what I would say. Mm. However, I will do the normal English teacher thing and say they need to read books. They need to read proper books. They need to read hard books um, because they have to read those too. And if your child is in year eight or nine and they're still reading the Diary of a Wimpy Kid, they need to stop doing that um, because it's not hard. Unless your unless that child has um has SCND and that's something that is a challenge for them um they need to be reading harder stuff and that's really really important school libraries should be able to provide really good appropriate reading lists if you can't find them through school you can google it challenging book reading list for a 13 year old and find yourself some decent books to kind of get them into there are massive issues with students just reading the same things again and again and again and I love Harry Potter I love, there are loads of things I love, but actually, if I just read the same books again and again and again, I'm not improving my brain. I need to keep pushing myself. And so I need to read some Tolstoy or I need to read some, you know, my dad's always nagging me, read some Hmm. Tolstoy. You know, so I think that there's nothing wrong with children reading things for pleasure that they really love. But we need to be mixing that up a little bit and making sure, you know, my son keeps wanting to go back to Winnie the Witch and he knows the story inside out and he can mouth it when we read it to him and I want him to read something else and I want to read things aloud. The other really useful thing, if you're a parent um, at home, is that there are enormous amounts of very robust studies that are out at the moment which suggest that students who hear high-level challenging texts read out loud to them improve their reading age really quickly. So then this works for any child um, of any age. So this could work with your 15-year-old audiobooks or get you actually reading to them. Now, the reason it needs to be read aloud to them is that them reading to themselves, um, they don't get the same prosody. So prosody is like the speed and the kind of melodic kind of how you read something. So you know, a story is going to have a certain melody to it. And that's because it's written like that. And that's how we kind of convey meaning. We convey meaning by our ups and downs and our pitch and our pace just as much as we do with words. And so if you as an adult and you're, if you feel confident doing this, say, do you know what? Let's just sit down for 20 minutes. I'm going to read you something. And you read to them. The Victorians used to sit around the fire and have one person reading out loud to the whole family. It worked. It was a thing. It, it works. <laughs> so get them um, listening to reading or put on an audiobook in the car, put on an audiobook, get them access to Audible and get them some um, things to listen to. It, it genuinely has a massive impact on their reading age. It doesn't just have to be something that they're reading like this. Hearing something read properly out loud is really, really positive, even if they don't understand all of it. You don't have to stop and read. You don't have to stop and explain the words. Just read it because they will. their brain will do the hard work and infer meaning from what's around words they don't know. That's how it works. So, so something that Jake was told was, um, or advised for Jake, was to have the audio book um, read by some by a Stephen Fry or by someone who who performs, uh, as you say, because the the text has a has a melody in it and it can involve get them involved because it's read in the right way. But to get an unabridged version on audiobook and to follow to follow the the 
paperback or the hardback or the physical copy at the same time as a way of sort of understanding the structure as well as the spelling and that kind of thing. Yes, yeah, so you can do that. Absolutely. The most the main impact comes from hearing it and working out meaning. But yeah, it, it certainly doesn't do any harm to be able to see the words and recognise that that's how it's pronounced. You know, it's one of those um, facts of life that people who are great readers but weren't necessarily from the most affluent, educated backgrounds tend to pronounce words wrong because they've only ever seen them written down. They haven't ever used them in conversation or heard them spoken, if that makes sense. So it's an interesting one. Like, yeah, following along can be useful because you see, you know, until I was about 15, I thought Hermione was pronounced Hermione because I came from a, like, proper working class <laughs> East Leeds household. <laughs> so it, I never met a person called Hermione. Hermione was a very posh name. <laughs> Or Hermione, I, I should imagine, in Leeds. There aren't very many of those around. Hermione. <laughs> <laughs> so what I'm picking up, and, and I don't want this to be gratuitous, accepting that there's an evolution in vocabulary and an mm. evolution in um, the written word. And so absolutely um, get that that's the nature of storytelling is changing from when I was a boy. Actually, even as it did the, from the language that I used when I was growing up to how my mum and dad, hairdresser, electrician, how they spoke, that actually using things like rad... <laughs> That's how old I am. Um, uh, the introduction of well instead of very. All of these kinds of things were, were something that they saw as being a bit odd and a bit strange. I accept that that's happening now with, with children. But what I'm still getting when we're thinking about the exams in particular is that finding a breadth of, of material that is high quality in inverted commas um, and stretching certainly is what is something that's going to be powerful and, and could potentially make a big difference for these children. Yeah, absolutely. So you mean in terms of reading reading material for them? Exactly. Yeah. So and yeah, I think that the most the most difficult thing is finding the right reading material. I think one of the big errors we make sometimes is trying to find things that will engage them. So and I use kind of inverted commas there because it's something that drives me a bit mad. Like a lot of people, particularly in schools, so teachers do this as well, and parents do it. They say right. My son loves rugby, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to buy him an autobiography about a rugby player, and that's going to engage him. Now, what that does, he might go, oh, yeah, okay, I might be more likely to read that because it's about rugby. But actually, he's not. that's not challenging him in terms of content. So there are lots of concepts in that book about rugby, which he already knows. There is lots of stuff culturally in there that he already knows. He understands the game. He's exposed to it already. It's fine. Actually, I'd rather give him a book about the life of Placido Domingo because that's a whole, it's a whole world of culture that he doesn't yet understand. So my mantra is every time we give our students something new to read in the classroom, every time we kind of recommend something, it should be something that's stretching not just their cognitive capacity, but also their knowledge and understanding of the world. And it should be about something else. I think it's patronising to say to a teenager, I don't think you'll be able to cope with anything that's not about football, that's not about a pop star or a film star or a social media influencer. I think that's really patronising. I think that good writing is engaging by itself. I think that getting a teenager to read something that's that's not necessarily something they'd have done by themselves is difficult anyway. So you might as well go for the good stuff if you're going to put in the effort, I think. Um, but yeah, I think that's really important as well. Think about, stretch their horizons. You know, if they already love, I don't know who they might love. I'm, I'm too old for this. If they already love <laughs> some teeny bopper pop star, don't get them reading about the teeny bopper pop star again because it's not, 
they know that stuff. And actually what will happen is their brain will just skim because they already know the content. They're far more likely to engage with vocabulary and content if they if it's something new. So that's just something, a tip from me. But don't be a snob, let them read anything. Like read from a range of sources. It doesn't have to be a paper book necessarily. There are lots of very well-written blogs, articles out there as well. So things that you can access for free. I think teeny bopper pop star might have put you in a certain bracket or made you sound like you're in a certain bracket <laughs> that I, I i know you're not in <laughs> so one of the yeah. things so one of the things i tried with emily so my youngest um and she so i i will amend my wicked ways because i think i have been guilty of of thinking you're not reading you need to read when in actual fact she is she's just not reading the kind of thing that i would dare i say approve of and one of the things that we tried over the summer holidays was to actually read a book together and I don't mean that in a in a teachery kind of a way. Picked a book that I thought she might like, and it was actually Emily Critchley's notes um, notes on my family, as I remember. It was a great book and really accessible, and it was something where because I was reading it as well, and it was certainly not normally on my um, my bedside table um, reading list kind of thing. Um, but there'd be something in there, and we could laugh about it. I go, actually, did you think that was funny? And I don't mean we started a book club. I just meant it was a casual way that that she was reading it. She knew that I was reading it as well. And that was that was just something that I thought might help to motivate her to do it. Because if I wouldn't naturally read it, but I'm going to for you, you wouldn't naturally read it, but we're in this together. Seemed to be one way of of doing it. And I think as uh, it, it just seemed like the right thing to try to do. I think it's a lovely thing to do. And actually, funnily enough, Without intending to, me and my dad have done something similar for a long time. So I think I was about 15, 16. Kind of, we started like pairing and seeing like, oh, well, I'll read it and you read it and then we can discuss. And it's, you know, we still do it now and I'm in my 30s and my dad's kind of 60 odd and he's, you know, I, I, I find it really, it's a really, really great way of having conversations when you're growing up with your parents, actually. But I think that that's a really lovely approach and I have had you know we've done things in school before where we've had like a parents book club where not a traditional book club but more like a we'll meet with a group of parents three or four times over the year we will have read bits of the set texts with them so that they know them and so they can talk about them with their kids not only do we talk we, we kind of talk about we give them like a story summary we talk about a couple of extracts and show them the kind of thing like we it's almost like they're the students and we show them exactly what we would do with their kids so they have a understanding of the process of studying the novel or the play and then we give them like a pack of like questions and conversation starters and the kinds of things that they might be able to do to support their students at home and it works really well we've done that with I've done that in a few different schools actually with different types of kind of parent cohort and it's been really effective but I think a lot of parents I've had parents who have then gone off and just read the whole set text list or they've chosen to take their kids to see a play because it's um and then they've been able to talk about it because that's one of their set texts and that's that's really powerful another really easy way of doing that guys if your if your child is studying a shakespeare play for example often theater tickets are prohibitively expensive not to mention all the things that go around the theater trip getting there and all that stuff and finding something decent that's on if you go online and find the globe theater company dvds um from shakespeare's globe in london for every production they do, they do a really, really high quality DVD of the production. And they're always the like traditional setting, traditional costume ones. So they're not kind of weird and difficult to access. They look like you would expect Shakespeare to look. It's not like going to see Romeo and Juliet and it's all on trampolines because I've been there. Um, <laughs> um, get, in, get the oh, DVD I think I've seen and that watch one. it. Do like a... Yeah, do like a family film night and watch it as a DVD. Um, watch it as a film. Because actually... 
plays are meant to be watched they're not meant to be read on 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 the page they're meant to be watched and discussed and enjoyed so that's a nice way of doing like we're gonna do your Shakespeare and I want the family to understand it so that we can talk about it and we can support you and that that can be quite a nice thing to do if you're interested if you can get keep them in the room and off their phone for long enough that's a dreadful stereotype but I do teach teenagers um, so I know what they're like I think compared to my earlier stereotypes you're only dipping your toe in the water I think um I think I've been wheeling them all out haven't I but I really like that I did definitely of of and actually hearing about you still doing it with your with your dad now although I think Emily and I are some way away from Tolstoy that um Actually, it is nice. It's nice to have a connection because so often, so much that goes on in their lives actually is a is something that's completely alien to me, and I'm I'm relaxed about it. it doesn't trouble me. Um, but actually, it is nice to have that thing where you go. Actually, this is this is ours, and it doesn't have to be as whole as highbrow, presumably as um as a war in a piece. But um, <laughs> hey, I I got but through it, war but it's a piece, connection. But it was a. <laughs> but and actually, the conversations I, that was a few years ago, and we still have amazing conversations about it. And I think. I do think sometimes that one of the things that literature offers us, and it's a shame if we don't notice this while they're reading because they have to read um, when they're teenagers. One of the things literature offers us is like this, this amazing, it's like a people watching thing. It's all reading a book is almost like sitting in a really nice cafe in the middle of a square in Florence and just watching people walk past and see what they're doing. And I think that, you know, you want to do that with someone and it's actually quite nice to talk about a book, to talk about a story. and it's so much nicer than, you know, me nagging my child and saying, um, why haven't you done this? I need you to do that. Go and eat your dinner. No, you can't have a snack. Like that kind of, actually, some of the interaction you have with them, you want it to be something abstract where you're both actually looking at the world and having a chat and enjoying something without any pressures on either of you it's not transactional the conversation you're having it's not am I getting you fed am I transporting you somewhere actually it's what do you think about this and do you think that was the right decision and you know it's it's a it's a much I don't know I would call it like a purer communication and I just think it's a lovely way of framing that yeah I think me and my dad for example have a much better relationship now that I'm an adult than we ever had when I was a teenager um, and I was a really well-behaved teenager, <laughs> but, you know, we we have this, you know, we talk about stuff. We don't talk about the transactional things. We talk about, you know, human avarice and kind of, you know, and it's, it's, a, it's a great thing. Jenny, thank you so much for being on the show today. That might have been the first subject-specific episode that we've done, but I genuinely don't think it'll be our last. It was fantastically useful, with some really clear, practical tips for students and parents alike. I remember thinking at first that English language was probably done by the time it came to revising for exams, but what changed my mind back then was actually taking a look through a revision book for English language when I was coming up with the study buddy approach for Jake. It was immediately clear that not only was there plenty to revise and hone, but actually it was possibly the cornerstone to other exams. After all, in most, if not all, exams, you have to interpret and understand a question before you can plan and deliver comprehensive answers. What I hadn't appreciated before hearing from Jenny a moment ago was actually just how far that reaches beyond GCSEs and into life. As Jenny said, there'll be plenty of times when our young people will need to persuade someone of something, whether that's in their CV or, as Jenny said, writing to a landlord about a boiler. The code switching idea was really interesting to me as well. 
I must admit, I see more of a decline in standards with the advent of tech speak than, than maybe Jenny did. And I'm often one that will lament the death of a semicolon. But I absolutely concede to Jenny's point that communication and language come in many, many forms. It's constantly evolving and transforming. And our young people are much more adept to switching between these styles than we might give them credit for. But at the same time, there are formats and techniques and vocabulary that our teens need to have in order to do well in exams. Teaching our young people a command of language that they can use in these contexts isn't about changing them into something that they're not. It is about equipping them to properly tackle the task in hand. We also heard ways in which we can help them. Vocabulary, sophisticated phrases, and looking at literature beyond memorising quotes to things like character descriptions are just some of the key aspects that Jenny talked about. I can easily see myself encouraging Emily to create flashcards around those. I'm not sure how natural it will be to throw a Machiavellian something or another into a dinnertime conversation, but I'm absolutely up for giving it a go. The other important aspect that I've taken away from talking to Jenny is that we should be encouraging a wide range of reading. Taking on board Jenny's point that information and news come from all sources and that we shouldn't be snobbish about it, we also heard that reading, or at least listening to, quality texts that are challenging are an important aspect of pushing our children's development. Motivating them to read can often be tricky, but perseverance is key. And on a personal note, I would wholeheartedly recommend the idea of reading something with your reluctant reader. When I did this with Em, we both had a copy and we'd agreed to read one or two chapters at a time. Sometimes we were sat in the same room, other times we just did it in our own time. Now I don't want this to sound highbrow because it really wasn't like that at all. We simply just agreed to read the same book at the same time and we'd casually bring up things that had happened in the text or that we thought might happen next. But not only did that mean that she wasn't on a device all day, but it was actually genuinely lovely to have a connection with my daughter over something where we were on an equal footing. Plus, I liked forcing myself to take time out. It's something we could all do with for our own well-being. I admit we've let this lapse since she's been back at school, but it's definitely something that I want to start doing again. Thank you all for listening. I hope, like me, you found this episode an absolute must, especially for anyone whose child is studying English. And let's face it, that's all of them. There were so many great ideas packed into this one episode. If you did enjoy it, I'd really appreciate it if you take a moment to leave a review and a five-star rating. It's a great way of helping us to reach other parents. And there are a number of us that could do with a helping hand when it comes to supporting our young people as they head to exams. Of course, I'd also encourage you to share the link to this and other episodes with your friends too. Always greatly appreciated. There'll be another episode next week, so please don't forget to subscribe to the Study Sessions podcast.